0: Bookum Dano, an old Hawaii Five-O podcast. I am your dazed and confused host, Kristen Haas, a.k.a. Kiki Wright. In this episode, we are covering episodes four and five of season one, Tiger by the Tail and Samurai. I hope you've been enjoying my overuse of certain words. It's something I notice when I edit these segments, I do it a lot and I don't suggest making a drinking game out of it unless you're okay with alcohol poisoning. I think my same disclaimer uh, as the previous episode applies. I think there might have been technical difficulties when doing these sound clips too. And I'm too lazy to redo them. So sorry about that. Yeah okay so let's go to Hawaii.
1: late evening news final tonight stole the story of the apparent kidnapping of popular young singer Bobby George. We'll have the latest details on that story and the rest of tonight's news in just a minute.
0: Episode four, Tiger by the Tail, aired date October 10th, 1968, directed by Richard Benedict, so this is number two of 11 for him, and written by Cy Salkowitz, who is a great name. Salminio plays Bobby George, a singer who is apparently kidnapped after a gig. The club owner has no idea why anybody would want to kidnap him because he was kind of a flop. When they go to Bobby George's apartment, they find a friend named Carol, and through uh, searching the apartment and talking to Carol, they find out that Bobby George's father is DJ Giorgiotti. He is uh, the owner of a, a large, successful hotel chain. Meanwhile, Bobby George and his kidnappers are watching the uh, reports of the kidnapping on the news because, hey, this is actually just him and his two buddies uh, faking a kidnapping for a publicity stunt. Of course, nobody else knows that, so DJ Giorgiani arrives to arrives at Hawaii, in Hawaii, and Steve advised him not to speak to the press, but he automatically does because... This is one of those guys that he knows better than you and he will do whatever he wants to do and he will do exactly the opposite of what you tell him to do because you know what he's smarter than you. Of course this plays well with Steve.
1: The Giorgetti, I don't much care what you think about me.
0: He also insults how law enforcement has been handling his son's kidnapping and you just know he's going to be a delight to deal with. Later, a tape is delivered to Bobby's friend Carol, and it's Bobby telling her to contact his father and have him come to Hawaii and cooperate. Uh, They figure out the tape was hand delivered, and Dano takes the tape to be analyzed. Meanwhile, against Steve's wishes, DJ Giorgetti goes on TV to confirm receipt of the tape and then he offers any amount of money to get his son back. Bobby sees this and realizes that his father, whom he's Got a rather strained relationship with and is somewhat estranged from, is really upset about this. He starts to feel guilty, decides it's time to wrap it up. Um, He doesn't want to cause his father any more trouble, but his buddies, Alan and Jerry, there, particularly Jerry, is like, So, how much is your dad worth? Like, uh, how much do you think your life is worth to him? Like, half a million dollars? You know? The next thing you know, this speculation about how much money they could get, this and and using him for using this kidnapping for a cash grab turns a publicity stunt fake kidnapping into a real kidnapping because Bobby wants to leave, but Jerry and Alan would really kind of like that money. Now Dano has the tape analyzed and through receipts they find out that Bobby George bought a lot of the same kind of tape. And when they get a tape of uh, some of something that he recorded previously and match it to the uh, first ransom tape that they get they realize that they're exactly the same and that this is most likely a a fake kidnapping and so just as they're explaining this to DJ who does first doesn't believe it but then he was just like whatever I will pay for whatever man hours was used because my son was uh, being a punk uh, a second tape is delivered. It sounds much different from the first because he, Bobby George, now is actually in fear for his life, and Steve realizes that the fake kidnapping has gone real. This episode is a lesson in how to. It's it's a lesson in friendship. It's a lesson in how to choose your friends wisely. Because you know what, you want friends that will fake a kidnapping with you help you get more publicity for your career so you can get booked in better gigs even though you're kind of a minor singer maybe you don't deserve it but you know you want friends that'll go to those links with you but you want also want friends that will stop short of actually turning your fake kidnapping into a real kidnapping so they can get half a million half a million dollars from your dad because the way real kidnappings work out is most of the time, especially in this case, the kidnapped victim gets murdered after the money is delivered because, well, the kidnapper doesn't want any witnesses. And if it's your two buddies kidnapping you, you're definitely going to know who did it. And that actually is what makes this, episode, this particular episode so compelling is that uh, you think you know. You're going along for this publicity stunt ride, and it kind of looks like how deep will they get? How how deep will they get in in the fakery of it? How are they going to get out of this this fakery? Because you kind of think that it's going to be okay, Stephen Five O. They're going to figure out that how these guys are faking it and kind of take them to task for that, and then you know you then you have that switch. And while the co- the concept is is good, the actual switch is a little unfortunately it was telegraphed a little too heavy-handedly earlier in the episode because there's a part where Alan's gone out I think to get groceries or something for uh, to bring back to this little hidey hole that they're staying in and it's just Jerry and Bobby and Jerry's got a knife on Bobby and he's pretending he says he's pretending to um of what it would really be like and he's telling him you know there can't be any witnesses and you know how this is gonna go down and he pretends to cut him, pretends to slice his throat. And he really takes Bobby for a ride on that. And he just like flips You know, he thinks it's a hilarious joke that he's basically made his friend pee himself over, over this. And Bobby doesn't find it very funny. They kind of come to blows about it before Alan walks in. So you see your, (laughs) the foreshadowing is there. And it's, it's pretty pretty blatant that yeah Jerry is definitely capable of taking a turn for the worst because he's obviously not quite on the level he's not exactly stable I guess is the best way to put it and it's delivered pretty pretty bluntly I mean you know I think it a gradual turn would have been a little like just not have that scene a gradual turn probably would have been a little more chilling than what you got Because that scene kind of plays out and you're like, what the hell is this? And it's just Jerry joking around. Jerry has a terrible sense of humor. Jerry is not a very good friend. Even before the kidnapping possible murder thing. He just, he seems like kind of a prick. On the other hand, you have Alan who is much slower to warm up to the idea of go ahead and holding his friend for money. And up until a certain point, he thinks that everything can be resolved uh, without killing Bobby George. It's not until Jerry, like, really drives home the point that, you know, they have to kill him that Alan actually gets on board with that. And that's the thing throughout the whole bit is um, that Jerry has to convince Alan through most of it. So while there's really, there's not a whole lot of room to have any sympathy for Jerry... You do have sympathy for Alan because he he is he, they have to keep talking Jerry has to keep repeatedly talking him into it even when um, they first decide that they're going to go ahead and hold Bobby for the money. Bobby tries to leave. he tries to run off and they chase him down through it looks like a sugarcane field and Jerry tackles him and and Jerry and Bobby start brawling and it and Alan just stands there. And it's not until Jerry yells at him to help that he actually intervenes on Jerry's behalf and they overpower Bobby. So there's this reluctance that plays out with Alan that I think is more convincing and more, um, it's more compelling and, than what you get with with Jerry because it's obvious from early on that this dude is slightly unhinged. But I do have to give it to the three of them for the initial fake kidnapping plot Jerry and Alan were stalking like actual pantyhose over their head kidnapped Bobby in front of witnesses they took him to their little hideout, they dumped the car Um, they set up an alibi for themselves by flying to the mainland uh, under their own names and then flying back under different names which is like (laughs) 1968 really easy to do try doing that now, forget it takes a lot more work Um, they even had their girlfriend's were able to vouch for them because they're the ones that dropped them off at the airport. So they had a pretty solid alibi throughout all of this. All they had to do was stay hidden. They had the tape idea. I guess the plan was that they were going to just dump Bobby somewhere. and Or he was I, because th- what, that's what it sounded like when he was like, okay, let's be done. Um, you know, just tie me up, blindfold me and dump me somewhere. And I guess that's how it was going to, how the kidnapping was going to end, which is rather anticlimactic, but you know Indians are always hard, but it was it was it was actually a pretty decent publicity stump plan, provided they didn't get caught. Unfortunately, good old Dad there had to offer up a bag of money you know in exchange for his son's life, which Steve expressly told him not to do. Obviously, have we not figured out that Steve is the protagonist and that he's going to know what's best? Apparently not
1: red tape. We set you straight, Mr. Giorgietti. The greatest enemy your son has right now is you. Look, I don't, I don't have to take that kind of abuse. McGarrett and every available man of 5-0, the whole little Police Department and the FBI are working to find your boy. And we will find him, unless you blow it by offering to exchange a bag full of money for a bullet in his head. Ah, that's ridiculous. Now, to a kidnapper, for him it's an easy payoff and nobody to put the finger on him. Well, so if you want to give your son the best chance of getting back alive, let us handle it.
0: But DJ Georgiotti is, is definitely, he's one of those people that you can kind of understand why his son, you know, took a walk and hadn't seen him for a while. He's one of those over, overbearing pricks that thinks he knows best and everybody else are, everybody else is, are, are morons and everybody else can't do their jobs. And it's just like, oh, he's the kind of guy that's just so unpleasant. You really, really don't want to help and of course, through his bullheadedness, he makes everything worse. I'd like to think that Steve got a little bit of satisfaction uh, from seeing that his his plans weren't working out the way he thought they would, that he wasn't getting his way, and that you know he probably should have listened to Steve. So obviously, I'm not going to spoil the episode, but I will say that it's really it's really fun watching um, once they get the second tape, how they analyze the tape and pull it apart and use it to figure out uh, where Bobby George might be uh, held and also figure out how to get to him and, and how to get to his kidnappers and, you know, the way they piece it together and puzzle it together. It looks a lot like something you might see in a police procedural today, but the technology is different. The techniques fit that technology, but it's basically the same basic techniques that we would use today, except... Our stuff would be like on big screens and with touch screens and, you know, it's not using reel-to-reel tape and radio stations. Now, this is the first episode that we see uh, Morgan White as the Attorney General and he's fine. He sticks up for Steve when DJ George already, you know, insults him and says that he's, you know, not very good at his job. The attorney general is quick to point out that Steve is the best and you're getting the best and basically subtly for infer- subtly infers that he should just shut his cake hole but there's a thing about Morgan White that kind of bugs me and that is his facial hair because I don't know if it's actually his facial hair or if it's you know he's wearing a mustache goatee wig if it's you know fake but the configuration of, the, of his facial hair on his face, he looks like he should be playing a villain on like the Wild Wild West or maybe um, an outlandish episode of Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea. They were all kind of outlandish. But I just he looks like he's a villain in another show. And they just kind of threw a suit on him and said, here, you know, you need to be the attorney, attorney general for a little bit. It just, I, it, I know it's probably just me. But I always think that every time I see him, that he should be, you know, plotting evil and laughing maniacally. Sorry, Morgan White. I do have one issue with this episode, and it's kind of going to be like a recurring theme through certain episodes, because um, this, no offense to you, Sai Salkowitz, but there's a lot of slang used in this episode, which is fine Um, as a writer, and I am rumored to be a writer. You're kind of advised against using slang a lot, current slang, because slang goes out of style very quickly. It's very period sensitive. But we see it a lot in television shows. And yes, it can make the shows seem dated, which is fine. As far as I'm concerned, reruns are time capsules for that particular period. So using accurate slang is not a big deal. However, in this episode, it just felt like it was... People were using, the person who wrote it. sigh, Salco, there, but the writers were using slang like they thought it should be used, not like it was actually used. It is heavily, heavily used throughout the episode between Jerry and Alan and Bobby George and uh, the two girlfriends that they interview and um, Carol. There's a, there's just a lot of slang and it just, it feels like they put the slang in because they thought that's, what they should do like that's how they thought people talked now i'm not saying that it isn't how people talked but it just it has a forced feel to it at least to me and that could be and it, it, the time effect it could be because you know i'm sitting here 50 some years later watching these episodes so it could just be that the, it's the datedness that's getting to me but it really does feel like they're using it just to use it but you do get to hear people use groovy unironically and no, that's fun. So let's take a closer look at the guest cast for this episode. Um as I said before, Bobby George was played by Sal Mino. Uh, he was quite the teen idol back in the day. He played John Plato Crawford in Rebel Without a Cause. He was Gene Krupa in the Gene Krupa story. He was really popular uh, like in the late 50s, early 60s. About the time he would have been on this episode, was, his popularity would have started waning. I believe we'll see him in another episode a little bit later. But unfortunately, his both his career and his life were cut tragically short. He was murdered, um, stabbed to death by a teenage junkie uh, in a robbery gone wrong. DJ Giorgiati was played by Harold J. Stone. If you've watched reruns, you have seen him. He was in Hogan's Heroes, Barney Miller. Um, he was Gabe Cotter's dad, Charlie, in Welcome Back, Cotter. He was Alexander Gregor Dubov in Goodbye Old, in the Goodbye Old Paint episode of Gilligan's Island. He was also Frank Nitti in the St. Valentine's Day Massacre. He was Mitchell in X, the man with x-ray eyes with uh, Ray Millan. Jerry Parks was played by Sam Melville. We'll see him again two more episodes. He was also, uh, I just watched him the other day in an episode of The A-Team. He's probably best known for playing Officer Mike Danco in The Rookies, which I just got two seasons of on DVD. Thanks, Chan. Haven't watched them yet, but I'm looking forward to it. Uh, Kate Jackson played his wife in that series, and then later he played Joe King, Uh, Kate Jackson's ex-husband in Scarecrow and Mrs. King. Alan Brent was played by Ian Berger, um, who really didn't have much going on, but he was Doug Colton on A Flame in the Wind, which was a short-lived ABC soap. Carol Blake was played by Heidi Vaughn. She did the guest star round. She was on stuff like Mod Squad, Gunsmoke, Medical Center, Dr. Welby, Mannix. Since Hawaii 5 obviously filmed in Hawaii, they used a lot of the local talent uh, as much as possible. So you see a lot of repeaters. And this episode had quite a few people that we're gonna end up seeing uh, several times throughout the rest of the series. The nightclub manager was played by Robert M. Luck. We'll see him in 11 more episodes as various characters. And he actually appeared in uh, several Hawaii-based productions. Peter Taylor, the security consultant. He was played by Richard Gossett. We'll see him in two more episodes. Charlie, the uh, tape analyst. He's played by Dave Donnelly. We'll see him in three more episodes. The newscaster is played by Bob Jones. We'll see him in two more episodes. Uh, One of the girlfriends, Judy, she's played by Carol Kai. We'll see her in five more episodes. Um, One of the newsmen was played by Dick Fair. We'll see him in eight more episodes. Another newsman was played by Robert H. Cruson. We'll see him in another episode. Oh, the reporter was played by Tim Tindall. We'll see him in four more episodes. The chef who chased Bobby George and his kidnappers through the kitchen with a big old carving knife. He, that's Smoky Palacio. We'll see him in five more episodes. And the TV director is Phil Arnon. Uh, we'll see him in two more episodes. But he was an actual director and producer. He produced uh, three cbs all-american thanksgiving day parades and he directed don Ho remembered which was a tv documentary and that my friends is tiger by the tail i think it's a a pretty good episode um i think it's overlooked a little bit just because i don't think it's as flashy as some of the other ones it's not as um it's not quite as wild as some of them can get but it's a solid episode It's got enough twists and drama to keep you entertained throughout even if I think that some of the structure is a little weird and definitely that scene with with Jerry pretending and joking with the switchblade with Bobby plays a little too heavy. It's it's still worth the watch if anything just to watch what the humidity does to Sal Mineo's hair. It's not kind.
2: (laughs)
1: This was responsible Samurai Ancient order of Japanese
2: knighthood Fanatic principles of honor A code of Bushido very enlightening, but um, may I ask what this has to do with me, Mr. McGarrett?
0: Episode 5 Samurai. Air date October 17th, 1968. Directed by Alvin Ganser, who directed two episodes. Story by Jerome Coopersmith. Teleplay by Mel Goldberg and Jerome Co- Coopersmith. Mel Goldberg has 12 writing credits for the series. Jerome Coopersmith has 32, so we'll be seeing his name a lot. Okay, so Ricardo Montalban plays Tokura, a Japanese businessman. Yes, you heard me correctly. We will be discussing it in depth later. Anyway, Tokura is being brought up in front of the crime commission because he's an alleged crime boss and he needs to answer for his crime bossery. While he's outside the courthouse being interviewed uh, by a television reporter, someone attempts to shoot him. But surprise, pull it through fast... Uh, the assassin is shot dead the tv reporter is completely baffled by the entire thing because Tokoro walks it off like a boss inside Tokoro's string of luck, good luck uh, continues because the witness against him Mary Travers drops dead on the sand on the stand despite being under police protection specifically 50 protection nobody knows how Takora managed to get to Mary Travers and they also don't understand what's going on with the assassin because he was a factory worker worker straight from Japan and as soon as he got to the island he went straight to the courthouse. Takora then orders a retaliation drive-by killing but it turns out that he's uh, gunning for the wrong people because as Steve informs Takora later he's being targeted by the Bushido. Uh, I guess it's a kind of samurai. I don't know if that's accurate because I didn't really, I didn't research this. I was too lazy. Anyway, so Steve wants to keep him alive so he can get him to prison, but Takura is kind of iffy on that. Takura maintains that he uh, was born in San Francisco. He has never been to Japan and he should have absolutely no trouble with anyone from Japan. But after another assassination attempt, Takora's daughter, Dee Dee, makes him uh, call 50 for protection. While Steve and company are there, there is a third assassination attempt. While Steve goes outside to attempt to get to the shooter, it looks like Takora is ambushed inside of his house by the Bushido, and Steve goes in to find him dead from a gunshot wound to the face. So while the Takora problem seems to have been resolved... There's still several unanswered questions, including why Tokora would be on this Bushido death list in the first place. When the body is moved, uh, Tokora's ring falls off, which leads Steve to suspect that the corpse isn't actually Tokora. And after some digging, it looks like Tokora isn't even Tokora at all. So Steve enlists Tokora's daughter Didi to uh, aid him in trying in trying to determine whether or not her father is actually dead, I'm gonna leave it there because there's a lot to talk about. Here's the thing: I really, really like this episode. This episode is so good. Just it's so good, every little aspect of it, because it's a, it's frustration from the first minute all the way through to the very end because you really, really want Steve to, and, and company to nail Tokora, especially, you know, after he kills Mary Travers on the stand with poisoned lipstick, of all things. You really want him to stick it to him. So this episode is really, really good. And I want to I want to douse you with all of the goodness, but before we talk about the really huge problematic thing in this episode... So like I said, really good episode. You have that that great tense frustration throughout the whole episode because it doesn't look like Steve's ever going to find a way to uh, nail Tokura, And you also have this wonderful added twist in that in order for him to get justice, he has to keep this this guy alive and, and nobody wants that. He's a rotten bastard. He doesn't deserve such mercies, right? Oh, kind of a prick. But Steve is very committed to justice. He's very committed to doing things the right way, which, you know, is admirable, I suppose. So yes, uh, Tokura is a very frustrating adversary for Steve, which makes for some really great moments throughout the whole thing. It's also interesting, too, because we have, it's like we have more than one mystery happening, in a sense, because we know that Tokura was some, is responsible for Mary Travers' death. We, we get that, and then we find out that it was poison. Later, we find out it was poison lipstick that killed her. That's how they got to her, because Dano is insistent. They didn't know how uh, she could have been gotten to because they were with her all the time. He tested every, every bite of food she ever had. Um, the one thing he didn't test was her lipstick, which I believe Steve tells him that he should have because it would have been a good shade on him. Danny should have tested the lipstick. Would have looked good on him. He's a good-looking guy. Anyway, so we know that Tokora is responsible for Mary Trapper's death. Once the how is determined, it's it's you know kind of it takes a backseat to why these Bushido are trying to kill Tokora, and then there's this added layer of who is Tokora. He maintains that he was born in San Francisco, that um, he they attempted to put him in an internment camp during World War II, but he escaped and he lived out the war uh, hidden on an island. And then uh, after the war, he he came back and, and made his money. That is later determined to be a lie. He would have totally failed Maury Povich's lie detector test because it turns out he's not who he says he is. Though the story he does tell is true, it just doesn't belong to him. And I'm gonna I'm not gonna spoil who he really is. And I'm also not gonna spoil um, how they determine whether or not he's alive because that is a sticking point for Steve shotgun blasts blasts the face you're not especially at close range you're not going to identify that person visually because there's not a whole lot left to identify it's what his identifiable parts are now scattered about the room but it was an interesting note that when they took the body out his ring fell off and prior to that his ring fit very tightly on his hand so Steve suspects that perhaps our corpse is not who he says he is. And he enlists Didi to uh, help prove that. And and she goes along with it because she totally believes that her father was killed by the Bushido. And it's the, the plan is actually really well done. And, and it's executed in a really kind of clever way that reveals even more about the... T- tokura character it just it basically robs him of any sympathy that you could possibly have for the man it's beautifully done the ending is wonderful i love the way that it all finally ties up and comes together it's great it's just a really it's just a really good satisfying episode and it does have some funny moments in it uh aside from danny being told he should have tried on lipstick there's a a moment with chin ho because chin ho is chinese He's talking to Steve about the Bushido and um, the, the samurai sword, because the first assassin, when he was shot dead, they found a, a small samurai sword on him, which is obviously used to commit ritualistic suicide if he fails. I don't know if the second uh, assassin had that had one on him, possibly. But the second assassination attempt was with a grenade. So if it was, it was probably elsewhere. And by the time that attempt, you know, failed. But anyway, so Chin Ho is questioning him goes questioning Steve about this Bushido stuff because he doesn't understand it because this is Japanese and he's Chinese. It kind of reminds me of um Nick Yamana on, on Barney Miller because he has to keep emphasizing that he is Chi- he's Japanese and not Chinese. This was kind of like the reverse of that. He's emphasizing Chin Ho's emphasising that he's Chinese and not not Japanese. And there was also a funny moment when uh, Steve instructs his, his secretary May to steal the governor's coffee pot because it's a twenty four I think it's a 24 cup coffee pot and the the implication is that they'll be staying up all night trying to figure this out but I just like that she's like he's like steal it go get it I'm the law here and it's fine I'm ordering you to commit slavery on behalf of my caffeine addiction I also want to point out that Takora's house is magnificent the layout is terrific the gardens are gorgeous. I just, I love everything about that house. And I'm curious because uh, they filmed on location a lot for Hawaii Five O, So that's, that house was actually a house. And I'm curious as to whether or not it's still, it's still there and it's available. And if someone would like to give it to me because um, I should, I should live there. I deserve nice things. So yes, this, it, It really is a great episode. It's got great moments. It's got really nice tense moments with the team when they're trying to figure out how Mary Travers was killed. It's got the great interaction between uh, Steve and Tokura. Let me tell you, watching Jack Lord and Ricardo Montalban in those scenes, it is magnificent. It is like watching two master swordsmen duel. Just the back and forth, the way, I mean, it's just so good. It's just so good
2: i'm the only one who can help you how touching i am sure you stay up nights finding new ways to help me
1: yeah i'll help you right into oahu prison but in order to get you
2: there i've got to keep you alive to get me there my garrett you have to dig up so to speak another witness by the way how did the poor girl die She was murdered. Poisoned. While well, in your custody. Why, that is absolutely shocking. Nobody said anything about poison. You did say she was murdered. And since I heard no shots, saw no knife wounds, I assumed poor Miss Travis had been poisoned. Uh, clever. Ah, but here I am helping you, and uh, you came here to help me. How would you keep me alive, Mr. Margaret?
1: We're state police. 5 operate with the local police units on all seven islands. We can seal airports, harbors. We can make certain that no more of those
2: hatchet men set foot in Hawaii. Key men reassigned. Thousands of dollars spent, and all for me are very generous of you, Mr. Margaret I'm always generous, especially to people who uh,
1: volunteer information. Such as? Narcotics, gambling, prostitution,
2: a book. By the way, Takora, what goes for you in Japan? Very well, Mr. McGarrett. About uh, Japan, quite recently I saw an excellent Fu Manchu movie. <laughs> it's Chinese, no? So it is. <laughs> Wrong again. Mm. And uh, if you have paid more than $2.95 for that poor imitation samurai knife, you were shamelessly cheated. I suggest you call the police. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Now here's the thing that spoils all of this good acting and and really kind of mars Ricardo Montalban's wonderful performance, and that is Ricardo Montalban is not Japanese. He's Mexican. He has a very pronounced Spanish accent, and if you have seen him at all in any of his other works, which I highly suggest because he is wonderful, and I don't know how you could live your life not experiencing Ricardo Montalban, you will know that he is very, very not Japanese. In order to make Ricardo Montalban convincing as Tokura, they basically put him in yellow face. He's not performing as a caricature by any means, but he is wearing makeup to affect the look of a Japanese man. And when I wrote about this on my blog, I said that it looked like someone had scotch-taped his eyes. It's a little more sophisticated than that, but basically what they did was put on uh, prosthetic eyelids to affect the, the Japanese look. It is incredibly distracting because when the man speaks, it is Ricardo Montalban. He's not trying to hide his accent. I don't think he could and you can see it's still Ricardo Montalban even with the with the makeup it's just that now his his eyes are affected in a strange manner and it's really really distracting it's it's just so obvious that he's not japanese and as much as i love this episode it pulls me out of it every single time it's always that thing where i can't fully commit to the episode because i know this because i know it's ricardo montalban because i know he has fake eyelids, which from what I read somewhere, the prosthetic was so heavy that he couldn't blink. So they, there's not a whole lot of lingering shots on Takora because he couldn't blink and, and that would be noticeable. I mean, that sort of thing is like blizzard people behavior. It would cause a mass panic. So yes, it's a problematic element. It's very noticeable I really want to know how this was pitched. I want to know who said what in the casting office that was like, hey, we have a role for a Japanese character, and somebody suggested Ricardo Montalban, and someone else said yes. Who does this? What is the logic behind this? And I'm thinking specifically because I know that there were actors, there were Asian actors that could have done this. The first one that comes to my mind is Mako because I love him and he was was Japanese. He would have killed it in this role. So it's baffling to see this kind of casting choice made because it's so obviously inappropriate. This isn't like giving Simon Oakland a tan and calling him Hawaiian, which is problematic in itself. This is about applying fake eyelids to a, a Latino man and calling him Japanese. Still a really good episode. You should still give it a shot. Probably one of the best episodes of the entire series. It's like way up there despite fake eyelids. Not much uh, to talk about in guest cast because we know Ricardo Montalban, who played Decora. He was Mr. Rourke on Fantasy Island. He was Khan in Star Trek. Uh, he was the grandfather in Spy Kids. He's been everywhere. He's been everything. He's absolutely wonderful. And we will actually see him again. One more episode in which he gets to play someone more of himself and not necessarily with it. He's allowed to blink. We'll see him in another episode where he's allowed to blink. Uh, his daughter Dee was played by Caroline uh, Barrett, who really doesn't have much... Uh, of anything of note in her uh, IMDb, except she was a uh, lead in the movie Dreams of Grass, which happened to be Danny DeVito's first film. Our doomed witness, Mary Travers, she was played like Karen Norris. Uh, she had mostly small roles in things. She was she was Miss Dixon in Pillow Talk. She had an uncredited role in The Manchurian Candidate. She had an uncredited role in a Twilight Zone episode, uh, Stop Over in a Quiet Place. And she also worked with uh, Lucille Ball in two of her post-I Love Lucy shows, uh, Here's Lucy and The Lucy Show. There are several actors in small roles that we will see multiple times. The chief petty officer is, that Steve talks to about something pertaining to, to, to Cora's past, that's Ed Sheehan. Um, we will see him in 14 more episodes. The TV announcer is Bob Sevy. We'll see him in nine more episodes The newsman, the baffled newsman, is Eddie Sherman. We'll see him in three more episodes. And Senator Harada, who is uh, part of the Crime Commission. He's played by Fred Titcomb, and we will see him in two more episodes. So, yes, I realize I got a little bit loud during this episode, but fake eyelids have that effect on me. Um, But seriously, give this one a shot. It is, it is just, it's a super, super episode, if you can get past the fake eyelids part. I'm never going to get past the fake eyelids part. But I still love Ricardo Montalban. Corinthian leather.
1: May, what's the biggest coffee pot they got in the building?
2: 22 cups. Steal it. But it's in the governor's office.
0: Thanks for joining me for episode three. I bet when you started listening to this show, you never thought that fake eyelids and Salmonio's hair would ever come into play. And that's what's fun about the journey through Hawaii Five-O. If you're daring enough to look for me online, you can find me at my blog, KikiWritesAbout.com. It is all things me, and it's also the home base for this podcast that you're listening to right now, Bookum Dano. And as always, if you need to satisfy your stalkerish urges, you can follow me on Twitter at KikiWrites. Thanks for tuning in. Remember to pick better friends than Jerry and Alan. And until next time, aloha.